I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's the words of Oppenheimer when the nuclear bomb first went off at the Trinity test site. And this would begin one of the world's most devastating weapons and possible savior from climate change. But there's a lot of rocky moments for nuclear power, and one of them we will cover today. Hello and welcome back to the ClearCast, episode 20. Uh, we're back from our sabbatical. We took a little break as, you know, we have some life events going on and we do this as a hobby. We can't always promise to be regular, but we'll promise to be consistent at least. And with that, we're going to get right on into episode 20 of ClioCast. So nuclear power was invented just around the advent of the universe and was the primary source of power generation for billions of years up until... Uh, water power was invented with the water mill. So the water mill was designed to mill grain, hence the name water mill, because it was designed for milling. And it was the primary form of powered production up until coal power or wind power, uh, like with windmills or coal stations in the Victorian age. And obviously, I've just generalized a couple billion years of history, including a couple thousand years of human history, but that's because that's not what we're trying to focus on here, and we don't have like all time to talk about all of history. We'll get around to it eventually, but not today. So nuclear power was invented by humans around the 1940s. So physicists had been theorizing that you could split the atom, use nuclear fission, all that kind of stuff for a few decades before they actually got headway on uh, actually doing it. But after the atomic bombs were dropped, people were thinking about, you know, peaceful uses. How can we use this to generate power to work for us other than just using it for military purposes? Now, once nuclear power or nuclear weapons became extremely popular opposition was intense and extremely uh prevalent for some groups you know this is a weapon of doom that can wipe out entire cities and now in a futuristic idea you're going to use it to create power well that doesn't seem quite right and with the advent of hippies, nuclear power and environmentalism were uh, two big focuses in banning the power of the atom and, you know, being better for the environment. Although now in retrospect, this is probably the best option we have for staying climate change as uh, coal and natural gas powers are extremely intensive on the environment and the economy of scale from wind and solar and the amount of resources required to produce such a uh, massive undertaking of solar panels or wind power would also require a lot of emissions burned, causing more environmental damage. But... At the time, in the 1960s, uh, the battle against the atom was getting started. So with the dawn of the nuclear age, after the dropping of the atomic bombs, 
and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's the obvious negative connotations, as we just outlined, to nuclear as seen as a weapon. But as nuclear power started to develop, and it was it's kind of embraced more across the world and adopted, and nuclear plants are being built, and there's that wave of really cool 50s and 40s, you know, futurism, where the bright, shining future of tomorrow and, you know, nuclear power, everything, kind of the aesthetic fallout's leaning into that's kind of spreading across the globe. And so, you know, the anti-nuclear activists kind of have an upward battle because there's not really much aside from the weapons usage and aside from the arms race going on to go against in terms of nuclear power. I mean, you know, it's had a couple accidents, but it's also a very new technology. And as far as everyone's concerned, it's just generating free electricity with nothing. So they don't really have anything to go off of in terms of actually opposing it. So there's not really that much of an anti-nuclear movement at this point in time. Most of it is just in terms of weapons. But at this point in time, this is before Vietnam. This is during Korea. So the U.S. is still coming off the highs of World War II. And, you know, we're fighting the justified war. We're coming right off the tails of beating the Nazis. So, you know, these reds must be the same thing. You know, the communists, all that kind of stuff. Red scare. You were still justified, you know. If you're being opposed to the government, opposed to nuclear power, opposed to nuclear weapons, you're anti-American. And that's still a very strong, it's a very bad thing to be called anti-American, basically. This is before Vietnam kind of killed this notion. And you get all the kind of radical movements kind of murder the whole pro-Americana phase that this world is in right now. Now, it's the 1950s, and the advent of nuclear weapons and nuclear power are on the up and up. And at the same time, there is a young naval officer who is just recently starting his naval career after graduating the United States Naval Academy, and uh, being a part of uh, a few different deployments on the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. He then switches over to being a part of the fledgling nuclear submarine program, uh, and is a part of one of the uh, first uh, nuclear reactor meltdowns, which is a partial meltdown of the experimental NRX reactor in 1952. This is a pretty good experience for this young naval officer to come back later in his life to actually know how to maintain and uh, you know, shut down a reactor during an incident like this. Uh, and this really shaped this man's view. But we'll get back to him later. So how does a nuclear reactor work? Well, you can get more complex with like specific pressures or whatever if you get into like specific reactor designs, but the basic concept is simple. You have a rod of radioactive material, one that typically gets hot without any real energy input, right? It just naturally will get really hot. You put it in a box or containment unit of some kind, and then you expose it to water. That water gets hot, it gets pressurized, it gets vented to a turbine. The pressurized water steam uh, turns the turbine and then it gets recycled back into the system to go back through once more. 
that turbine spinning uh, generates the electricity. And typically you have graphite or graphene control rods that will regulate the reactivity of the actual fuel rods. So you can turn it off if needed. And that's how you make sure it doesn't overheat. Now, traditionally reactors are designed, at least in the U.S., with uh, fail-safe, which just means that if the reactor fails, it's made safe instead of deadly. I.e., if the reactor fails, instead of it just constantly getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, it instead kills the reactivity of the core, making it a dead reactor, but it won't get any worse. In the case of something like Chernobyl, uh, that was a fail not safe. I can't remember the word right now, but effectively when the reactor right before the control rod went in, it actually increased reactivity. So if you need to turn the reactor off in case of an emergency, you have to make it more reactive for a few seconds. But if you have every single control rod going in at once, that adds up to be quite a bit of reactivity. And if you have a runaway you know, reactor that makes it much more reactive, increases the point of criticality at the worst possible point, which means that instead of it failing safely, it fails deadly. You make it more reactive. And that was the issue there. But most American reactor designs are designed the other way because it might be more expensive, it might be, you know, produce less power, but generally speaking, most people don't like having a nuclear accident on their home soil. But the United States hadn't had a nuclear incident yet, and uh, they were building nuclear power plants like crazy. And one specifically was uh, a plant being named Three Mile Island, which is being built in uh, Dolphin County, just south of Harrisonburg in Pennsylvania. The construction began in about 1968, and the commission date was in 1974 for Unit 1, and then Unit 2 followed closely behind, starting construction in 1969 and ending construction in 1978. Now, Unit 2 is what we're going to focus on because... uh, the legendary incident of uh, U.S. nuclear disasters happened at this plant at Unit 2. And this is where our story begins. And the officer you mentioned earlier was, at the time, in 1979, President Jimmy Carter. But we'll get into Jimmy later. So Three Mile Island is a pressurized water reactor, which means that the system operates under high levels of pressure Uh, circulating water and steam to maintain higher efficiencies effectively. So instead of like a system that isn't under pressure, they're able to maintain, you know, power generating temperatures and all that kind of stuff a lot easier because it never really loses the pressure it has. But one thing about that is you have to make sure that the pipes are clean because any blockage could be fatal. So they have some filters that are designed to keep out rocks and stuff from the intake valves but these filters would obviously get kind of clogged because you know they'd be catching rocks and stuff so they'd have to clean them out regularly so the regular process to do this was just to shoot pressurized uh, air into the system to just kind of knock all the stuff off and zip zap zop it's really easy you know it doesn't take a lot of effort but on this particular date they happened to get a tiny amount of water that got forced into one of the air pipes. So this water doesn't sound like that big of an issue, but 
it, it causes a couple of sensors to basically read it as an error and cause the pumps to turn off. The feed water, condensate booster, and condensate pumps. So basically the system is not moving anymore. So this is fairly regular. It, this is planned out effectively. The engineers know exactly what to do. There's no more feed water. There's no more water moving through the pressurized system. So you just drop the control rods back in, right? So the pressure is building up, building up, building up. The heat's building up, building up, building up. But the control rods being dropped in kills the heat generation. And so that allows the pressure to kind of drop. And the temperature also drops as well. But it doesn't drop to zero, see? Despite the control rods being in, that kills the reactivity. But what it doesn't kill is all heat generation, period. Because the rods themselves are still generating heat, you know? They're still naturally heat generating. That's what makes them good for nuclear reactors. Basically, everything that's happened so far is standard operating procedure, right? The control rods dropped automatically. There was a system designed to pick them up. It's all planned out. It's it's orchestrated. They they know, okay, well, if this happens to happen, we have systems in place to stop that. So everything is operating exactly as planned. It's not that big of a deal. So with the reactivity killed, uh, some backup feed water pumps started running and started circulating water back through the system. One of the plant operators noted this. Okay, the you know backup pumps are running. That's good. But what he didn't notice was that the pipes actually letting the feed water into the reactor were blocked. Now, we know one of them wasn't noticeable because it had a maintenance tag in front of the light that shows you whether it's run open or not, the valve. The other one, we don't know why he didn't notice it. Maybe he just wasn't paying attention. But either way, they believed that the feed water pumps were pumping water into the reactor, but that was not what was happening. Now, what else happened as part of the fail-safe mechanism was some valves opened to kind of reduce the pressure in the system in general. You know, they vented some steam and they vented some coolant. And they were designed to basically get down to a specific temperature and pressure and then close back up. You know, bada bing, bada boom, you're ready to go again. The steam valve closed properly, but the coolant valve did not. But what did happen was the light for the coolant valve turned off. This was because the detector that detected the pressure turned off the light when it was at the pressure, but it didn't turn off the light when the valve was closed properly. It wasn't designed to detect that. It's like, hey, the pressure is at this level, I'm off. But the valve is still open at this point, right? So you have the system kind of shut down in idle state with feed water not going in like it's supposed to, and the coolant valve is open. So what happened next was about a minute later after the beginning of the actual reactor failure, it's all been procedure up until both those valves didn't shut. And now engineers were confused because despite, you know, the system being in a shutdown state, it simply was not doing what they were trying to expect it to do. The water level was rising, but the pressure was falling. This was the opposite of what should have been happening. You know, the water level should have been falling and the pressure should have been dropping. And they just weren't trained for what to do here because this wasn't supposed to be able to happen, right? What was happening was 
the water level was rising because the steam was being vented still through the open valve, the coolant valve, and it kind of killed the pressure in the whole system, which then caused an issue as the coolant loop was not getting more coolant. So there's basically a bubble that was forming because the whole system was kind of emptying out. So the steam just kind of started to fill up the system, which then started to kind of give more weird readings for them. The engineers weren't trained for any of this at this point. This was well past the pale, and they were just unsure what to do. Because effectively, the steam wasn't supposed to be in there, and it was just reading it as water, and also it was reading as invisible. They they couldn't tell it was steam. As far as they knew, the water levels were just like varying wildly as the pressure began to cause cavitation. Effectively, little pockets, cavities were forming, just kind of messing with the whole system. Now, the pressurizer relief tank that is having the uh, pressure feed into it, but the valve is still open at this point, the coolant valve, overflowed and caused the tank to crack. And all the coolant began to just spill out because it was still just pumping into the tank. The valve was open. It overfilled broke out, began to spill out around 4.15 a.m., so about 15 minutes after everything started. Now, this was just... The engineers just did not know what was happening. You know, they followed standard operating procedure. The reactor was fail-safe, but because the instruments that they had at their disposal didn't accurately tell them what was happening, they never had a chance of solving the issue, right? Because, you know, the light didn't tell them whether it was closed or not. It just told them whether the light was on or not. And because the sensors were only designed to tell you if something was there, not what that something was, not, hey, this is a gas, not a liquid. They just didn't have a hope of solving the issue at this point. So around 520, so about 80 minutes after everything started, it's been about an hour and 20 minutes. The steam is still building up in the reactor you know, and steam is less dense than water, obviously. So you have the system that's designed to be partially water, and then the steam just gets vented out to the turbines, is just filling up with steam, and it's not designed to hold this much steam. The cavitation is continuing, but it's growing more now, an hour later. And the engineers, who still don't know that the feed water pump is blocked, decide... Let's just shut off the water intake, right? It'll be naturally pumped through because the feed water will push everything through. So if we just turn it off and let the feed water take care of it, it'll take care of whatever the heck is going on in here. Around 6 a.m., this all came to a head and it broke. The steam finally was pressurizing the whole system enough. There was enough of it built up that it cracked and the top of the reactor blew off releasing everything in it, well, all the steam at least, all the actual radioactive material remained. It, it wasn't an explosion like the thing you're thinking of like Chernobyl, right, where the whole reactor gets lifted off. It was just the top of the reactor blew off because of pressure. And once it was off, it was, for the most part, fine. Like, it wasn't going to explode again. But because of this explosion, it kind of damaged the whole control rod system, which caused a little bit more reactivity, which then caused the actual fuel rods to kind of melt together into one system. Now, this was all still contained within the original reactor vessel, but the roof was off now, so it began venting some air, you know, some air, some steam gets in there. In fact, it didn't 
the reactor alarms didn't go off until 6.45 to tell them that radiation levels were significantly higher than the expected norm. By this point, 30,000 gallons of coolant had leaked out of the primary loop, and the radiation levels in the containment facility were 300 times what they normally were supposed to be. Now, after the incident began, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania was in contact with the company that owned Three Mile Island Power Plant at the time. It was called uh, Metropolitan Edison. And they were assured that everything was under control. Uh, Then, the lieutenant governor uh, told everyone that everything was under control, but decided that that wasn't uh, correct and said that it was actually more complex. Uh, and everyone around the area was put under a uh, pretty stringent lockdown, and everyone was urged to uh, stay indoors, and farmers even kept their animals undercover. Uh, Most of uh, the pregnant women and school children within a five-mile area were told to evacuate to a 20-mile radius, and uh, within days, uh, a little less than... 200,000 people had evacuated the area. But, uh, with investigations starting, including federal investigations, uh, the president at the time, Jimmy Carter, uh, started a commission into the accident. The commission consisted of uh, some pretty, uh, you know, important and smart people, including the president of Dartmouth College. Now, this investigation was really trying to figure out uh, exactly what went wrong and uh, get a final report and have something for the public to understand about is this a fault of uh, the company, the fault of one person, is it just a freak accident, and what changes need to be made to the nuclear industry. Uh, And really what was found is uh, the... Workers, although operating under procedures they were allowed to follow, were extremely inadequate for managing uh, what was going on. And this is why uh, the U.S. Nuclear Agency now requires you to have uh, multiple checks on a nuclear reactor and also extreme amounts of education. So there's no Homer Simpson in any of your nuclear power plants around your area if you live in the United States. And uh, what else happened was the improvement of evacuation procedures and uh, a massive change in the uh, capacity of uh, nuclear power plants and uh, a massive increase in opposition to uh, the power of the atom. Now, with, you know, this is the 70s, 1979 is the end of the hippie era, but... All of these people, everyone across the country heard about Three Mile Island, and if you're hearing about pregnant women and pre-age school children being evacuated and uh, a little less than 200,000 people leaving an area, it's like, oh, wow, that sounds horrific, and you're going to go anti-nuclear. But in retrospect, uh, just days afterwards, Jimmy Carter toured Three Mile Island, and really, if you will put the picture as uh, the main picture for the episode, all he has for protection is a a little uh, boot around his feet, and he's just in a regular, very 1970s suit. 
But, you know, it being a relatively small nuclear disaster, uh, still a disaster nonetheless, any disaster to any future nuclear power plants in the United States, and a growth in the opposition. But the opposition would really kick up with Chernobyl and uh, would have a resurgence with Fukushima. Uh, but really, it is this podcast's opinion that uh, nuclear power is one of the few ways to actually uh, combat climate change. And with proper regulations and uh, proper governance and running, you if you build more nuclear power plants and have a pretty solid oversight, you can combat and cut off coal, natural gas, and oil production almost completely. But that is the opinion of the podcast uh, and not the opinion of other people across the country. Now, that, in broad terms, might be the opinion of the podcast, but the opinion of this podcaster is that Three Mile Island is the worst nuclear disaster in history. It's worse than Chernobyl and Fukushima just because it began to give the anti-nuclear groups something to work with. I believe, me personally, not the podcast, that the cessation of nuclear power plants, killing them off, stopping building them, you know, Three Mile Island operated until 2019 when it was finally decommissioned and not because of another failure or another anything it was just because they couldn't afford to run it anymore now my question for you audience is you are generating free electricity you do not have to purchase oil or coal you are just you know boiling water to create power out of rocks how can you possibly lose money off of that you're generating 800 megawatts of electricity per day perfectly cleanly with no accidents since the one that you know shut down the first unit but that aside that didn't kill anyone that didn't increase cancer rates that had no real effect other than the reactor being shut down how do you lose money i mean it it makes no sense to me what we need to do is we need to increase nuclear production because it is much easier to phase out fossil fuels when you have a significant base load of electricity to replace it with Because solar and wind is good in a renewable sense because, you know, it's good for the environment, it's free electricity, but nuclear energy is free in the exact same way. It's a tried and true method of producing power. It's very low maintenance in terms of you don't have to refuel it. The fuel can last 50 years. Most nuclear operating stations in the United States, including one near us, Wolf Creek Generating Station in Kansas, has been operating for decades without a single incident, generating megawatts of electricity for free. Stopping that is what's been a disaster for mankind, because what did you replace nuclear power with when we stopped producing it in like the 70s, 80s, 90s? We replaced it with coal and natural gas, because solar and wind hasn't been able to even come close to sniffing what nuclear or coal or natural gas has until recent years so we could have had a 50-year head start on phasing out fossil fuels across the globe but instead we killed it for coal it's just i think it's ridiculous personally and that's my soapbox and you know what i agree so anyways thank you guys for tuning in i've been rc and i've been matt and this has been the Cleocast, episode 20. I think we're going to call it what we just said, the greatest nuclear disaster in human history. And that might be a bit of a clickbait headline, but I believe it's true. So thank you all for listening. Tune in next time we come out with an episode. 
we're going to maybe not do it once a week for a little bit just to kind of catch up with our own lives. You know, we have a little bit going on, uh, but we're, we're going to keep putting these out. Don't worry. 